Okay. Oh, how y'all doing? Are you really doing great? Oh, good. Okay. Oftentimes in my traveling, you know, you always say to people new, how you doing? And they'll say, how you doing? And I'll say, do you really want to know? Because if you do, I'll tell you. But if you don't, I won't. And they go, eh, I really don't. So sometimes we're like that. Um, it's going to be back in Matthew. We're going to be here for the next couple of three or four weeks, I guess. We'll be going on through, and uh, we'll have a number of different ways we'll be presenting that. But as we get started here, let's, let's open up in a word of prayer. Father, we're all coming from different places today in work or leisure, having accomplished things or having wished we accomplished things with kids that are doing great and with kids that we're still praying for and for families that are growing and for families that are shrinking. And Lord, all these things are happening in the midst of our lives. And we come here now, Father. We, we seek you as a as a refuge, as a comforter, as the, um, the God who lifts us up. We pray that our time here this evening, that you would encourage us, encourage us, that you would strengthen us, that you would allow us to see you more clearly, that we would see your plan that began many, many centuries ago and continues to be your plan today. So teach us from your word now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, see if this works. If I turn it on. Okay, it's going to work. So the last time that I was with you, we were talking in Matthew 1, and today we'll be in Matthew 2, but that Wednesday night when I left, Francel came up to me and he goes, Randy, you didn't give us the answer. I told you in the last verse of chapter 1, it says, so all the generations from Abraham to David are, are 14, and from David until the captivity in Babylon are 14, and from the cap captivity in Babylon until the Christ are 14 generations. And I said, but there's not 14 generations. As you can see here, number 42 is missing. And he goes, what's the missing generation there? So I wanted to go through something with you, and we could probably spend literally the whole time going through a lot of the numbers, the unique things that Matthew brought to this section of scripture. As you know, Matthew was a tax collector. He was a guy that was good with numbers. And he used the Hebrew language and he used um, the Greek language. And as he put those things together, he had a mind that was astute and clear and clever. He had a great memory. And when he recorded things in the scripture, we noticed some things that are mathematical in nature. And you realize, could these things have just happened? And so there's a professor uh, that had done all the math on it. It's like one times 10 to the 147 zeros, that even just a few of these things could have taken place. So let me show you what I mean. So here's the 42 names. Let me get out of the way there so you can see that better. So here's the 42 names, 14, 14, and 14. If we take, in Hebrew, the alphabet, and we assign letters, remember there's no vowels in Hebrews, so the name David has 14. Abraham, we add up the consonants, 
we get 41. If we take Christ, we end up with 42. So that's, understand how this is gonna work. Jeconiah, another name in the second uh, column there, his was 40. So we would go through that. So here in the first column, we start with the first name, Abraham, and we go to the last name of the 14th there. See the 14 down at the bottom. It adds up to 574. If we take the name Abraham, 41, and we multiply it times David, 14, we end up with that same number, 574. That's kind of interesting. I wonder if that works more than once. So the second one, Solomon down to Jeconiah, we do it again. Take David, 14, Jeconiah, 40, we get 560. We run through the names again, multiply it, we get 560. How about the third column? David to Christ, 588. We go through all the columns there, we end up with 588. Each column adds up and we multiply David times the last name there, we get the same number. I go, that's, that's really interesting. Then if we take Abraham times Christ, 1722. If we take all 42 of those names, the last two being Jesus, which was the 41st, and the 42nd wouldn't be Christ, the everlasting Christ. We add all 42 names together, we end up at 1722. And if we take Jesus, 41, and multiply it times Christ, we add 1722. So Matthew, in his genealogy, wasn't just giving us the names. And remember, within those names, there were curses. And we didn't go through that the last time. But within Matthew's, there's curses. And certain names weren't used, and certain names weren't used. And then when you go through the Old Testament history, you discover, oh, those guys were cursed. They couldn't have been in, and they weren't. And had they been added and used differently, the numbers wouldn't have added up. And there's no way you can say that Matthew sat there, and he tried to figure all this out and reverse engineer it. It's just mathematically impossible to have done that. So in this genealogy, in Matthew 1, God is saying, think of it this way. We know in Genesis 1:1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then it said, and God said, let there be light, or like light be. Air be, moon be. He just spoke it into existence. To that level of detail, he created you and me and with our DNA and all the intricacies of our bodies. And then on the macro level, all the intricacies of the universe, we realize God is very detailed and very specific when he puts things together. So it's not surprising that when we get to the New Testament, that when he gives us the genealogies to bring it all together, that God was very specific and the numbers work exactly the way they would have had it been done in Genesis 1.1. So here's the different generations now, all 14 of them added all up. And again, if you added all those up, it would be 1,722. Any other name, any other genealogy mixture wouldn't have worked, not just in the addition, but then the multiplication wouldn't have worked. And what's really crazy is this is just one example of how when you take the scriptures and the number seven and how it comes together, it's just absolutely mind-boggling how much God had done when he did that. We also talked about in that first lesson, and I just want to make sure you remember this, 
These four names here, after the Babylonian Empire was existed, it was destroyed by the Medo-Persians, and after the Medo-Persians were destroyed by Alexander the Great, these four generals took over. And we learned that these two, this guy, Seleucus right here, and Ptolemy, that was going to become the focus for the next four or five hundred years. And so Ptolemy, and you have Alexandria and Egypt down here, and you got Seleucus, you got Syria, and all this area here is Mesopotamia. This is where Babylon was, right from Seleucus, right and left there. Um, this is modern-day, uh, excuse me, modern-day Turkey today. Um, this is going to become the focal point. These two people are going to keep warring, battling, in Jerusalem, which would be down here, whoops, right in here, it's going to change ownership seven different times. There's a constant battle going on. And so when we get to Matthew chapter 2, that is going to play part in it once again. And so here's these names here, some names you need, you'll find here. This one here, Medes, so you, Media. So you think of the Medo-Persian Empire and the Medes, that's going to pop up. Over down here, you see Babylon right here in the center. You're going to see here this name today, Parthia. And you see these are all, here's Jerusalem over here, these are all over on the eastern side, from the east. So we're going to talk about this east here today. So let's look at Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, where is he who was born king of the Jews? For we've seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And when he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, go and search carefully for the young child. And when you have found him, bring him back Bring back word to me that I may come and worship him also. When they heard the king, they departed. And behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them, till it came and stood over where the young child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child and Mary his mother and fell down and worshipped him. And when they had opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. Well, there's a couple things that we see right away here. It says, um, we call them wise men. Um, it says they were following a star. And if, if, we've, if you studied history at all, and we did it even with the pilgrims, whenever you're traveling across great distances of land or water, um, you're always looking up at the skies. We're looking at constellations. You're trying to take the constellation, measure it against the horizon so you can find your longitude and your latitude. You're looking at planets and seeing how they're moving in the season. So it was not uncommon for them to be guided by the stars. They didn't obviously have GPSs and things of that. 
But we're going to see that there's a couple of things in this story that if we look at the traditional Christmas story as the world would give it, we probably have a few things wrong. First off, the story here that we just read, it did not happen at Christmas. It had to happen at least several months later. Chapter, excuse me, verse 2 says, now after Jesus was born. So it was after he was born. We're not given any kind of time signature, but we know it was after, his, after he was born. Um, it didn't happen at Christmas. It happened several months later. In fact, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, um, it says when they came and saw him, it says he was a young child. So he was no longer in a manger. He wasn't sitting there. And if we take the look at the word manger, and when we think of that story, the Christmas story, we say, well, there was no room at the inn, and so they left, and they were knocking on doors, and they went from door to door to door, and there was no room, and they went over, and they found a stable. Probably not what happened. You see, a Jewish home in those days was kind of a split-level home. And when you went into the home, you went into the main area, and then they had an upper room or an inn, if you would call it. In fact, when Jesus uh, had the Last Supper, he told his disciples to go inquire of the room that I have need of. Tell them I have need of that room. It was that same word that we had when talking about there was no room in the inn. Same word that Jesus used when he was looking for the room for the, the upper room. And then it was a different word when the Good Samaritan rescued was rescued and an innkeeper came by and he paid him and he took him to the inn. That is the word that when we think of Motel 6, we'll leave a light on for you. That's not the word we were talking about when Jesus was born and there was no room in the inn. So what, where was he born then? Well, next to that bottom floor in that state, not stable there, they had a room and it was just kind of, maybe this is one level and that's the room down there. And that room butted up against this room, and this was, was, think of it like a solid floor. And uh, the animals, they came in out at night, and they came into that room as where the animals stayed. It's still in the house, but it's in that room. When they said there was no room in the inn, because like Jesus and his disciples, when they went to the upper room, that upper room was now being used. So there was no room in the inn, in the upper room there, for Jesus and Mary to go when he was to give birth. So now when it says they came to see Jesus, they said they went into the house. It's no longer the inn, it's no longer the stable, they went into the house. All of this being said to say it wasn't the same day that this happened. So when you take your nativity scene next year and you put the shepherds there and Jesus and something, don't put the wise men there. The wise men belong probably down in Brea right about now, and they're going to make their way here, but a very slow truck when they do that. So we don't know exactly how much time. And then in verse 11 there is when it says, And when they had come into the house, they saw the young child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. So he's no longer a baby. They saw the young child. So how much time was it? Well, we don't know. We do know that later on in the story that Herod's going to kill every baby, every child, two years and under. So two years would be the outside. We know that in Luke 2, Mary talks about going through the purification. And if you were in Leviticus, you would discover that she has to do that for at least 40 days. So there's at least 40 days after. 
So somewhere, they say, looking at the time frame and the movement, it's probably somewhere, maybe anywhere from eight, nine, 10 months up to two years. We don't know exactly how long that time was. The story doesn't tell us. In fact, all we know about those wise men, it says they came in the east, from the east, they came to Jerusalem. We don't know a whole lot more there either. So why do we say three wise men then? If we don't know a whole heck of a lot about them, why do we say three wise men? Anybody guess? Three, three, three gifts. Three gifts. <laughs> That's why we do it. There's no specific reason other than that. Um, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Someone came along and said, wow, three gifts must have been three wise men. Um, another little myth that would go along with that. These guys weren't kings either. So the song, you know, we three kings of Orientar, wasn't three kings. It just was kind of like, you know, Paul Revere, when the words rhymed real well, it kind of fits the story, even if it's not historically accurate. So they were, um, they're looking for a king. They're looking for this one who's been born, the king of the Jews, but they themselves are not kings. They didn't come from the Orient. They didn't come from China or on the other side, Japan or anything like that. The city we know they came from or the area, as I showed you that map there, that one area here is, here's the Medo-Persians, oh, it's right over down here above Cyprus, right below that, that's the area there of Jerusalem. So anything over here where Parthia is, Babylon is, Medes is, that's all east. So anywhere from there would have satisfied this particular verse, anywhere from the east. So we're having to strip away some of the baggage from that story. So who are these wise men then? Why, why is there so much of a focus on these wise men? And I think when you get done with just this little bit, you're gonna realize there's, it's kind of like back with those numbers. Sometimes the, the details really matter to help us understand what God was doing. Sometimes we take a cursory look at things and we get the basic idea, but we miss the nuggets. It's almost like when God said, I told things in parables so people wouldn't understand. And I think sometimes, and we'll see this with the scribes and the priests here, where you read things and you know things, but you don't necessarily understand. So who are these guys? Again, Matthew 2, 1, after he was born in Bethlehem in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. It's not a whole lot of information there that we get. It seems that they come out of nowhere. These coming from the east. And Herod, also called Herod the Great, they get an audience with him. Now, why would they get an audience with him? Who are these guys? And then it says that Herod was so dis dis distraught and all of Jerusalem with him. So it's probably not just three little kings coming in on camels coming into Jerusalem. There's more to the story than that. So over the years, there's been some traditions that people have developed or myths about this. Um, one that's common is saying, well, they're just the sons of representatives of Noah's sons of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And they even have names supposed to be Gaspar, Balthazar, and Melchior, and they're from Arabia, Ethiopia and Tarsus. Where did they get that from? Just somebody decided. They made that up. And then Marco Polo came along. 
Not the guy that did the swimming pool game, but the Marco Polo that was around the 1300s. And he said, I found the place where they were from. Didn't tell us where it is or how he determined that, but it's just one of those myths that floats out there. And then in Cologne, Germany, there was a, a bishop there, and he says, I found the three skulls of those guys, and they're here in our church, and we know it's the right ones because their eyeballs are still in their sockets, and they're facing Jerusalem. And I'm going, how do you know they're facing Jerusalem? I mean, is my pointer facing Jerusalem? But if I turn, now it's facing that way. So, again, all of these were myths that people were trying to claim in terms of you know, how things got started and who these wise men were. Um, nobody really knows how many there were. Nobody knows their names. Uh, nobody knows how they got to Jerusalem. Uh, they probably didn't come in on camels, camels, excuse me, but all we know was that they're from the east. It says wise men from the east. Now this word wise men, it's not really a, we didn't go to a, a, a dictionary and say, oh, this is an interpretation of what that word means. Um, it's a word, it's kind of magi, M-A-G-O-I, where we get the word magi, and they came from Medo-Persia. Remember there, the Med, Media, that whole area there, Persis down here, that area of Iran, that would be Persia, that area there, that would be Medo-Persia. They came from there. So now you get an idea. They're going over there where it says Cyprus, and they came from over here. And we say the distance that they traveled is probably around 500 miles. So these are people that came from this particular area. And the Greek historian says they were a priestly caste of Medes. They were priestly. They were an hereditary priesthood very much like the Jewish priesthood. So you had the 12 tribes of Israel, then they had the tribe of Levi, and they did all the ceremonial work in the temple, all the feasts and all the preparations. That was for the tribe of Levi. And later on, after the captivity, when they kind of got back together and they wanted to become a priest again, they had to go back and prove with records, a genealogy, all the way back to Aaron, that they were in fact a priest. It was a hereditary priesthood. That's what the Jews had, and that's what these Magi has. They were monotheistic. They believed in one God. Uh, they believed in worshiping that one God. Um, there wasn't like the Greeks and the Romans, all these different gods for each and every different thing. They didn't have that. They believed it was wrong to touch a dead body. Um, they believed when you had a sacrifice and you made those meat sacrifices, animal sacrifices, that animal was to be eaten the way the same way the Jews had that. So there was a lot of similarities between these Magi and the Jews. They also believed in fire. They saw fire as the principal object of worship. So whenever you had, again, believing in one God, the fire was always part of it. So on one side, you had this eternal fire altar. The fire was always going on that altar. And over here on altar number two, they had the altar and that was for the sacrifice of animals. So they would take the fire here, the eternal fire, and go ahead and light the fire, and it would burn up the sacrifices, then they would eat that meat. And that was their form of worship. So, bottom line though, they were pagans. They, they believed in one God, but it wasn't the one true God. So they were 
pagans. They believed in sorcery. They believed in following the stars. They were really good at studying the stars, but they also believed in the dark side of that, the astrology side of that. And just as the priests and the Jews had their priestly garments and they had the ermin, you know the word, I can never pronounce it, and um, therm, thermim, <laughs> um, and they had it right there in their garment up on top. These guys had the same thing. They called them divination rods, and they used those divination rods to cast lots and to make decisions and things of that. So they believed in the, I'll say the occult, but they believed in there was a power behind the stars and divination, and they were really, really good at interpreting dreams and talking about dreams and understanding dreams. They were really good at that, as a matter of fact. In fact, as we go on, our word, the word magi, one of the words we get from it is the word magician. Um, another one is magistrate. And you say, why magistrate? Well, because they were really powerful. They were a group of people, again, over in Persia here, and they actually rose up and they fought against Rome and they lost. And so they began then to advise the leaders and they became very, very powerful. And a little later I'll tell you how powerful that actually had become. So they are um, these powerful group of people and they had what we called the law of the Medes and the Persians. And we see that in Daniel. He's talking about the law of the Medes and the Persians in Daniel 6, 8. Um, in the book of Esther, it talks about the law of the Medes and the Persians. And we know they were living in Babylon a long time. They were in Medo-Persia. They were in the Medo-Persia empires. Um, we know that Nebuchadnezzar invaded Israel. We know that he captured Israel in 586 BC and he took those people and he brought them all the way back into Babylon. And one of those groups of captives had a very famous Jewish boy named Daniel. And so now we say, well, wait a minute, are you saying these magi are related to Daniel? That changes the story a little bit. So we're stuck with those three kings. We find out that they lived in this area of Medo-Persia Medo here. They had the laws of the Medes and the Pers Persians. And so when they come in, their question is, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? These guys aren't Jews. So why do they care about the king of the Jews? They're not from Judea. Judea is way over there, where, kind of below where it says Cyprus. They're from way over here. They're not even close to him. Where is he? In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophets. How did they know that? How did they know that? Brought of you, and that was the path of Micah 5 too. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, you are not least among the rulers of Judah. It's funny, when Herod went to ask them, he said, where, where was this Christ child? Where's he, where was he gonna be born? Because they said, we're looking for the guy that's born king of the Jews. And so Herod doesn't know who that is. And so he asks his scribes and his Pharisees, where is this born the king of the Jews? Bam, they rattled Micah 5-2 off. They had it memorized. They knew exactly where it was. They didn't have to search their scriptures, didn't pull out their iPad. They didn't have to do any of that. They just knew what it was. They memorized it, and they quoted it, and they didn't have a clue what it meant. Can you imagine if someone said something about the rapture, and there was a scroll or something, and it was located in Whittier? 
and it was in a library there, and all the details, all the questions we have are in that book located in Whittier, and we could tell you where it is and what it says and everything, and we just never went over there to look at it. It just doesn't make any sense. How could these scribes have that scripture? Or imagine if you're going to witness to someone, he says, oh yeah, I know, if you believe in, the, believe in your heart, the Lord Jesus, God has raised from the dead, and they just rattle off John 3, 16, all these scriptures, and they know everything, but they have no clue about how to get saved. That was the scribes and the Pharisees. They knew it, the top of their heads, they could quote it, but they were so legalistic and religiously indifferent that they didn't know what to do with the scripture. And he says, Herod was troubled. And that word troubled means agitated. Think of your washing machine when it's going back and forth on that particular cycle. It means deeply shaken, deeply perturbed. And it says, all of Jerusalem with them. Everybody tr everybody's troubled. Why? Everybody's troubled because Herod's troubled. It's kind of like happy wife, happy life in reverse. Why is Herod troubled? Because of that simple little question. Where is the king? Now, why would that bother Herod? Notice what it says when they introduce Herod. Now, after Jesus was born in Judea in the days of Herod the king, so Herod was called Herod the king. But actually, you know what he was called? Herod, the king of the Jews. Herod, the king of the Jews. So when they come in, he was called the king of the Jews. So when they come to town, and by the way, when they came into town, um, we know the Magi, they had these conical hats. And then they had kind of a long ear flap over them. So you can imagine these coneheads riding into town and they, again, weren't on camels. We know they came from way over there, so they were probably on kind of a, an Arabian horse or something, and it wasn't three. They think there might have been 20 or 30 of them, 20 or 30 coneheads driving into town on these things, making up the stink, wanting to know where is he who was born king of the Jews. Herod's, he's going, well, wait a minute. I'm the king of the Jews. So now... And it was very, very important to him that he was called king of the, king of the Jews. So who, who is this Herod guy then? So this is a picture of Herod the Great. And here's, him, imagine him talking to, and it's interesting, when you look at history and you're looking for slides or something, they go back and how many, how many magi do they have here? Three. Even though they're trying to paint a historical picture, they go back to look at something that's just a myth. So here he is. It says king of the Jews, but he wasn't a Jew. He was an Edomite. He was born kind of on the other side to the east of the Jordan River in that area over there. His dad was called Antipater, and he did a favor for the Caesars. And so as he was in close to Caesar, Herod the Great was raised in Rome, and he kind of got in real tight. And he learned a lot of the politics and how Rome worked. And as he grew up, his dad passed away. And Rome, Caesars, gave him an area to rule. And they called him King Herod, King of the Jews. 
he had a wife. Her name was Mary Ann, kind of like Mary Ann, but with M-N-E at the end. I didn't list her here. She's the, um, she's the mom right here. You say, well, why didn't you list her? He had eight wives. We could have listed a number of them. Well, Herod was really paranoid that someone was going to try to take his throne. That idea of being king of the Jews, it was really important to him. He liked the title. He possessed that title. And so Miriam, remember I t we talked about that area between Ptolemy, Egypt, and the Seleucids up here, and they said they were warring all the time in between that area? Well, the Hasmodians were in the middle there, and she was one of those, and she was one of the most beautiful of all of them. And she had a brother called Aristobulus Bolus III. Well, she was beautiful. He was handsome. They were connected, and Herod felt threatened. So he kills his wife. He kills her brother. He kills his two oldest sons. He kills his mother-in-law and countless others of his other wives. These are the only names that we see in scripture here of the Herod family. So Aristobulus IV, that particular son, he was killed. Before he was killed, he had another son called Herod Agrippa I, and he had a daughter named Herodias. And you go, wait a minute, that name sounds familiar, Herodias. So Herodias, Herod the Great, he says he's going to give off Herodias to marry your step-uncle, Herod II, over here. That didn't work out real well. So Herodias divorces Herod II and marries Herod Antipas. Enter John the Baptist. John the Baptist said that was wrong. This guy, remember Herod, he, he was raised in the Jewish religion. He had Roman citizenship. Culturally, he's a Roman, but religiously, he's kind of a practicing Jew. He said, both your spouses are alive. That's not allowed. And John the Baptist is coming down hard, and he doesn't want to do anything because he thinks John the Baptist is a righteous man. So they have a daughter. Whoops. Uh, I'll probably have to come back to that. So they have a daughter. Her name is Salome. She's the one. Remember, Herodias divorces Herod II, still her daughter. So Herod Antipas and Herodias and Salome are the family unit. And at a birthday party, the celebration, she dances, and he's so impressed with her dance, he goes, I'll give you up to half of the kingdom. And of course, the wife doesn't like it because John the Baptist has been coming down on her marriage to Herod Antipas, and so she says, ask for the head of John the Baptist. That's all part of the Herod family here. So they're that together. This is just different areas here. So who's this Herod Philip guy now? Well, Herod Philip is another owner. And the way it happened in those days, because Romans up here and they honored Herod the Great, Herod got to take his family members and put them in various positions of power. And so that, that particular Herod here, Herod Philip, he became um, in an area of Caesarea, and then we, it became known as Caesarea Philippi. And you've probably heard of that. So he's up there ruling in Caesarea Philippi. Salome, down here, she marries Herod Philip, or the, Philip the Tetrarch. They get married. 
And you go, wow, this is really a sordid family here. If you didn't live, you know, you really, it, it's kind of hard to follow the dots here. So they get married and they decide to go out and get more and more land. They're gonna kind of wheel and deal it. Well, then the Caesars find, about it that, find out about that and they go ahead and they exile them. And we never hear again about Te Philip the Tetrarch and Salome again, they are gone. Whether they were killed or just placed on an island or something like that, we don't know. So let me go back to these pictures here and show you. So the, the area here, oops, here we go, right here. So see what down Judea is? Later on in the story when it says that's where Herod was, and then they told um, Joseph, you need to flee. So he flees. And when he comes back, he's going to come back to this area here in Judea. And that's where one of Herod's sons, Archelaus, was. And he was worse than his dad. So he goes, oh, I don't know I'm going to do this. So he decides, I'm not going to go back to Judea. And you see of Galilee there, it's in blue. There was a different Tetrarch that ruled the blue area. And there was a different one that ruled the Decapolis area. That's where Philip and Salome started out. So each of these different areas had a different ruler. So when Joseph came back, he went into Galilee, bypassed Judea and Archelaus, went up to Galilee and over to Nazareth. That's where he went back to. So here's Archelaus. Instead of going into the brown one there, he went up to the blue one. And that was ruled by Herod Antipas. Okay. And then if we go down to Herod Antipas, Herod Antipas, at the time of Jesus' trial, he went down into Jerusalem, and he's down there, and this is the time that Jesus goes before Pilate, and Pilate goes, oh, Herod Antipas, that's where Jesus had a lot of his ministry. I'll send him over to his house. So Pilate sends him over to Antipas, and Antipas goes, uh-uh, I'm not going to do this. You guys want him dead, and I can't do that. So he sends him back to Pilate. So that's Herod Antipas in Jesus' life. Herod Agrippa, which is the grandson of uh, Herod the Great. He's ruling in that same area of Judea, and he, we see him in Acts chapter 12 when James is killed and then Peter's in prison. That's under Herod Agrippa, and then later on, this is Philip and Salome, I told you about them, and then later on, there's another son, Herod Agrippa II, and this is the one in Acts 25 when Paul goes before Herod. So every time it says Herod in the scriptures, it's not the same Herod that was there in Matthew 2 that we read earlier. Each one of these Herods is a different son or grandson or great-grandson. And this is the one in Paul where he says, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to become a Christian? And then Paul says, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you but all who are listening to me today may become what I am except for these chains. And it, that was Herod Agrippa II. So that's who these guys are. And... Um, So how did, how did these, this is the Herod, this is the one that everybody's coming in town to see, this is the history that they have, all that you see, that's their family history. We know now that he was a tyrant, we know that he was murdering, murdering people right and left. And so when the king come, where's king of the Jews, they realize this could really upset the apple cart. And so the people in Jerusalem got really nervous because Herod got really nervous. 
And Herod got nervous, so he says, where are those? Where are, the, where, where, where are these guys going? Where's, where's this Jesus being born? And so when the people run off, we know that they went off and they found Jesus. So let's look at verse 11. And when they had came into the house, they saw the young child with Mary. They saw the young child with Mary. How in the world, again, did they know these things? So go back to the idea that this was Magi. This was at a time when after um, Nebuchadnezzar captured the Jews, he calls out and he says, I had this dream. And he calls in his Chaldeans, his sorcerers, and his Magi. And he calls them into the room and he goes, tell me my dream. And they go, but king, we, we don't know your dream. And he says, you, you need to tell me not only what the interpretation is, but you need to tell me what it is. And they said, oh, king, you can't do that. And they said, well, there isn't a God other than the gods that, that don't live with flesh that could answer a question like that. And then they, Daniel hears about this, and he tells the guy that's supposed to come out and kill all of these people. He goes, take me to the king. I'll interpret the dream. And so he does. And Nebuchadnezzar puts him in charge over all of the Magi. So now he's in charge of all the Magi. And then we know there's a second dream, and he does it again to his grandson, or his son, and Belshazzar. And so we see that Daniel is suddenly elevated. He's in charge over all of the Magi. And so at that point in time, say, what do you think he was probably sharing with the Magi? He was probably sharing the Jewish scriptures. He was probably sharing prophecies. He was probably sharing messianic prophecies. He was sharing those things with the Magi. So when the Magi, and generations later, come to Jerusalem and they're looking for this king of the Jews, they're not being guided well, they are being guided by a star, but they're being guided by the training that Daniel had been giving them all those hundreds of years earlier. They were captured in 586, and we're talking around 4 BC. So we're talking almost 600 years of training and waiting for these scriptures. And I'm sure when one day when, they, when the star shows up, well, think about that. What was that star? Right now, if we went outside, I don't know that it's dark enough. When we looked up in the sky, we may be able to see uh, Venus. I don't know if it's out in this time of the year or not, but usually somewhere over there, there's Venus. And it's just a big white dot out there. It's brighter than anything else. And if we were in the desert, we might be able to see the North Star. But if I saw the North Star, it might be way over there. My house is down the street here. It's not over my house. They said, well, maybe it's a lineup of all these planets and it's cross-linked with Pisces, and that's what they were looking at. But again, if it's not over my house, how is that going to help me? So there was all kinds of rumors and things that they thought they could do, but none, none of them made any sense at all. So what do I think it was? And again, I don't know any more than what the text says here. But I do know that when the children of Israel left Egypt, that there was a a pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day. And all of Israel, all two million of them could see that. All of them at once could see that, that it was leading them. 
So it had to be something that was moving. In Ezekiel 43, it says, Ezekiel says, I saw the, the, the glory of the Lord come through, and it went through the east gate and went through the temple. And as he goes through those verses there at the beginning of chapter 43, it show, talks about how the glory of the Lord was moving. And that's what we see here. So the, these magi, they're coming, they're seeing this star, and they didn't say the star, they said his star. For we have seen, in verse 2, his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. So now they've been following his star. Now you would think if the star was guiding them, where would it guide them to? What city? Bethlehem. But they ended up in Jerusalem. For some reason, God wanted to go through Jerusalem first. They go to Jerusalem... And when they, when they heard the king, they departed. Then it says, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. So they saw the star. It appeared again. And it moved over. It's moving. And it's over now where the young child was. And when they saw that star, his star once again, it says they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. They didn't say they were happy, didn't say just joy. They said exceedingly great joy. And that when they come into the house, they saw the young child. And I think, and we've all seen babies and newborn babies, and some of them are really, really cute, and some of them are adorable. Some of them don't look really cute that first time. This child was now, if he was one or two years old, I don't know if he was cute looking or not. But I got a feeling that had nothing to do with what they saw. Because for five or six hundred years, they've been looking at these scriptures and waiting. And then when that star appeared, they knew, based on what Daniel had shared with them, the prophecies in Daniel 7 and Daniel 9, and it talks about the Messiah Prince, and they realized this was it. Come on, guys, let's go. And so they travel those 500 miles and all those days watching that. And as it gets close, now they're disappointed because they end up in Jerusalem. So there's no star guiding them. So they stop and they go in and see the leader, the king, where is he was born, king of the Jews. This is the Magi. To become a king in Persia, you had to learn the science and the religion of the Magi's. And then the Magi's had to accept you and anoint you king. The Magi's were the kingmakers of the day. The kingmakers. So when they walked in, all of Jerusalem knew the kingmakers are here. Herod was troubled because the kingmakers were here. Other historians in the day said people knew that there was a king, a future king, coming from Judea. Rome was fighting the Medes. They wanted their power back. The Medo-Persian Empire had already lost it to the Greeks, and now they'd like to get it back. The Magi wanted their king to go up against Caesar and fight and win, but he was kind of wimpy about it, so they were disappointed. They wanted a new king. So when it says this king now is here, they're, they're ready to go. They come into town and saying, 
The star's gone. So they go to sing, King Herod, where is the king of the Jews? And he sees them as the kingmakers. He sees them as looking for this king of, in Judea that's been talked about in history. That's going to be against Rome. And so his only response then is what? I got to kill him. I got to kill that boy. So he asks the Magi, where was that? When you find out, let me know. Because I want to go worship him too. Yeah, right. Well, he, they, they go another way. And he realizes he's been duped. So he kind of tries to figure out when they arrived and what they were saying. And so he goes in and he says, I want you to go down to Bethlehem and I want you to kill every male child two years and younger. And not to dehorrify that, we know now today that probably at that time there was maybe 20 to 25 babies that were slaughtered. One would have been too many, but it wasn't like the Holocaust and six million babies. It was 20, 25 babies that were killed. And of course, the people that were in Jerusalem at the time didn't know this was going, I think Bethlehem's about six miles south of Jerusalem, so they didn't have to go very far to make that happen. So then there's that um, scripture here where it talks about Rachel, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel, weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. So for the Jew, the real Jew, their hearts were broken for those 20, 25 babies. Now Herod, he was about 70 years old when all this was going on. He was such a wretched man that he knew nobody would care that he died. So before he died, he went out and arrested all the nobility. And when he arrested the nobility, he said, the day that I die, I want you to go in and kill them. And then Jerusalem will mourn and weep, and at least there'll be some kind of crying at my death. That is a sick mind. Well, he does. He arrests all the nobility. And of course, he dies. And all those that locked that nobility up went in and when I'm sure they thought they were going to be slaughtered, they left the door open and saying, be free. So it never happened. So he had attempted to have everybody weep when he died, and of course it never happened. And when Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph. So he had sent an angel, talked to Joseph in a dream, saying, go down to Egypt. So Herod was going to kill. Angel came to Joseph, said, flee to Egypt. That map would back up here. Egypt would have been down by that one guy there, Ptolemy, down at the bottom. And he went down to Egypt. And don't think Egypt was a, a faraway land that had nothing going on, because in all those battles that were going on in all those years, all the refugees from all that war for that intertestament period, they all went down to Alexandria, Egypt. There were over a million Jews in Alexandria. There was a couple million that came across in the Exodus. There's now a million Jews down in Alexandria. So when Jesus went down to Alexandria, he was not alone. There was a lot of Jews that were there. And they stayed there. Again, we don't know for how long exactly until the angel comes and talks to Joseph again on another dream. This is the third dream. Excuse me, this is the second dream. So now he says, you can go back now. For those that seek the life of the child, they're dead. Then he arose and took the young child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. 
But then he heard that Archelaus was reigning. That's one of Herod's sons. And he was worse than his father. And so he was afraid to go there. And you say, well, how would he have known that? Again, a million Jews that are coming back and forth here. These, these people that are fleeing that area because of the wars and the battles going on. The reputation of Archelaus was well known. And being warned by God, they turned aside into the region of Galilee. Back where Mary and Joseph came from. And he came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth that it might be fulfilled, which is spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. So if you're doing a Bible study and you see that, the first thing you're going to do is look over in your footnotes and saying, oh, okay, where was that? And you look over there in your footnotes and you're looking for 23 and you don't see a prophet listed. And you find out that that isn't in the Old Testament. And you go, well, how did that happen? And so notice it says, which was spoken by the prophets, plural. And so there's a, a summation there where he's looking at the prophets and going back and living in this land of Nazareth. And that because he lived in this land, Nazareth, he would be called a Nazarene. What's crazy about this that's the end of chapter 2. And the next thing we do, 28 years later, we're in John the Baptist. So God started this thing with the genealogy, with all the numbers, the things we talked about there. And then we went when um, we talked about the virgin birth in the second part of chapter 1, the miracle of the virgin birth. And now we have this magi that are really going back to Daniel, these kingmakers. They come in, they upset Herod to the point that he kills 20 of these babies and they see the king of kings. So why in the world is that story there? What was God trying to tell us? What's the message that you and I would leave here today with thinking that, well, it's, it's, a, it's a compelling story where you have 600 years the way God ties everything together we have interesting people. I mean, the Herod family is interesting. And I mean, for that standpoint, history is interesting. And so that's kind of cool. But why? Why would God want us to see this? And then immediately jump from here, we skip all of Jesus' childhood and we jump right to John the Baptist. So there must be something God wants us to see. There must be a reason that God looks at that. I would love to tell you that in my study and in my time with the Lord, the Lord said, Randy, I'm going to tell you something that no one has ever heard before. It's going to be so cool. These people are just going to get blown away. Don't have that. But I can tell you things that the Lord's been sharing with me. It's, it's interesting. As I was getting ready for this talk, I'm giving another talk tomorrow morning to the men, and I'm in parts of Revelation. So I've got the birth of Jesus in that life, and then I've got the end times and all the destruction going on. Those two things are going on in my head the whole time. And what's, what's fascinating to me is you, and I realized here, this story, we talked about this the first time. When this was written in Matthew, we're talking something that was written around 50 AD. So the people in the New Testament didn't have this. That first generation, they were living without it. They were going, whatever live, it was kind of like live TV. There was no 
DVD, there was no DVRs, there was none of that going on yet, no TiVo. The next generation was gonna have this written down. So, could God in his infinite wisdom recognize the eyewitnesses to all of these things were gonna pass away and die too? And the story would end unless there was something recorded down accurately. And just as God did with the Old Testament, his old covenant, and he brought forth a mystery, as it says in Ephesians, this mystery that God was doing, he immediately began documenting the history, documenting down so the next generation wouldn't have to wander. Because remember, in the old covenant, the law couldn't save. It could show you how desperate you were, that you needed a sin, you needed all these sacrifices, you had to go through all these rituals and things to somehow get close to God, and the people couldn't do it. Every couple of years they'd fall, they'd turn back away from God, and God would bring a judge, they'd turn back, and they'd repeat it again and again and again and again and again. And then God bursts for this new entity, and he says, I am going to birth my son. The living God is now going to be birthed. We saw the birth here. The magi come see it. These are the, the sorcerers and the magicians in the world, and yet there was within that pagan world, there's a couple of them that are actually believers, that actually see the scriptures and seek out that God. And he takes that and he writes this story down so that you and I wouldn't get confused, we wouldn't get lost in all the minutia. We go back through this whole book, but there's two chapters where God says in the beginning, I supernaturally, just like I did in Genesis, I spoke. And if we go to Hebrews, it says he speaks to us today in his son. The new medium is Jesus. And he went through this little story here to show you that whether it's King Herod's and it's Rome or it's all the battles in between, the new method going forward in communication is Jesus. And that's worth, that is worth knowing. He gave... And I didn't mention this, but oh, one second, I went one second, found a zero up there. Um, when he gave the gold, frankincense, and myrrh, and just very, very quickly, we understand gold would make sense because you're giving it to a king. And the king of kings, gold would make sense. But he'd been gone for years now, probably at this point in time. So Joseph, how did he finance all these trips? How did he do that? Where was all the money for food and all these different things coming from? Again, I don't know, but I certainly think gold would have been a great gift to have going forward. Frankincense, we know it was, it was, it was a costly spice. What's really interesting, that spice um, it comes from an, a, a plant in Arabia, and you take it, when you squeeze it, it comes out kind of like a white pulpy thing, and then it hardens. But the only way you can get it out is that plant has to be crushed. And if you go to Isaiah 53, it says, and he was crushed for our sins, our iniquities, bruised for our sins. And then we know myrrh was also used fragrantly. It was, also, it was used sometimes to combat pain. And when Jesus was on the cross, they wanted to mix the myrrh with the wine, and Jesus refused it. But it was also used as along with other aloes and that, to take away the stench and the smell of a body that it was decomposing. And we know that in, in John, he tells us that when they buried Jesus, it was over 100 pounds of spices. Weird presents to give to a kid 
But you realize when he told Joseph and Mary, he will save his people from their sins. And how, does, how do you do that? And the answer was death. So in this story, it kind of starts out when we were, talking, we were talking about the ceremony and the betrothal the second week and a great love story. So to, and it comes back and there's a marriage and it's all great and wonderful. But in, in the mind of God, he's, always, he's already telling us this is going to end up in death. But it's going to end up in life. Always that twist before death, before life must come death. And that's the story that Jesus stated. And then he said, before you can be, experience life, you have to be born again. These confusing little um, parables that Jesus gave. And I'm, I, I just need to share one thing. This is not part of this at all. It's just something that um, sometimes we read these things and um, we get the stories wrong. Just like we called them three, the three wise men. We said they were from the Orient. This is in Revelation 14, 6. And it says, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to him, for the honor of his judgment has come. In Revelation 14, it says, In that day there will be an angel, and he will be loosed, and he's going to go preach, it says, the universal gospel to every nation, tribe, and tongue to repent and believe. And I thought, wait a minute. I've always heard that we need to get on our horses and we need to go out and share the gospel more so every nation, tribe, and tongue hears it and then the Lord can come back. And I'm reading this and I'm says, no, wait a minute. The angel's gonna do that. He's gonna go do that at the end. And I'm thinking that means, and we always say, you know, Maranatha, the Lord cometh, the Lord could come at any minute and we believe that. But it was really nice to find a scripture that said, you know, if you have two ways. Number one, it means the Lord's going to make sure people get saved. There's 144,000 witnesses, Jews, that are going to get saved. And then the angel's going to go out and he's going to do it. And if we have loved ones that are, just seem so far from the Lord, and we're thinking, oh, if the rapture comes, who's going to do that? An angel's going to be out there preaching. Probably a whole lot better than, than you or I could ever do. So... Father, your word is, it's really interesting, and it's, um, it's amazing how the detail you've gone in to give us your story. And some things are so simple that even a child, a babe, could understand it, and other things just require us to think and try to wrap our heads around it. And in the midst of all that, Lord, there's a simplicity of the gospel that Jesus loves me. He loved me to die for me, and he, he says that if I, would if I would receive him, I could receive complete forgiveness for my sins. And Lord, even a little pea brain like me can understand that. And so, Lord, thank you. And thank you for taking such effort to teach us from your word in history and in the past and the things that we'll be learning in coming weeks ahead. So, Lord, take your word, encourage us with it, strengthen us with it, excite us with it, Lord, because it's from you. We bless you now and thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.
Amen. Sunday morning, Charlie, Charlie I almost said Charlie Daniels. <laughs> Charlie Campbell's going to be here. And it's uh, kind of continuing the uh, apologetic theme that we've had. In other words, the time. In fact, today, my wife said last night, she goes, oh, did you hear about Chick-fil-A? Did you hear about this and about that? And I go, no, I didn't hear that. So, of course, I had to look up it and do it and found out what that was all about. What's interesting to me, and whether it's, it's misquoted or misnot, we're going to keep hearing more and more things about people and companies that aren't measuring up to the way the world says they should measure up. They're not measuring up to the way conservatives say they should measure up. And if anything is proven more effective than today is you can't trust in a system. You can't trust in politics. You can't trust in the, a party. You can't trust in politicians. There's one person and one person alone we can trust in, and that's Jesus. And so even though it's discouraging to hear those things, you know, remember, you know what? He knew all these things. He knew all this was going to. That's why he says, don't let your heart be troubled. He goes, I go to prepare a place for you. In my house are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would tell you. So go in the name of the Lord and be blessed. Amen. Amen.